Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the History of India podcast called The Legacy of Foreign Emperors. This episode is the first of a few special episodes I'll be doing this season. The main episodes of the podcast follow the rulers of Pataliputra, but there's a lot more going on in India other than the rulers of Pataliputra and what's happening to them. There's all that stuff down south, and there's stuff going on in the west, and maybe the east too, and there are changes in society which cover the whole of India. So it would be a complete disgrace to focus entirely just on the, on the political history of the rulers of Pataliputra. To cover up some of my disgrace, I'm going to be from time to time doing a special podcast episode covering one of these other issues. In this episode, we're going to cover two things. First, the Persian emperors from Cyrus the Great on, who invaded parts of northwest India. We'll be looking at how they did it, and we'll be looking at their legacy. Second, the historians of India. We're going to be doing a bit of history of history, looking and seeing what various historians from various times have thought, and perhaps some of their ulterior motives. First, though, we need to get a bit of a feel for the geography of the area. So this is the geography of northwest India without maps. In particular, we're going to need to be, what's going to help to be a little bit familiar with the river system in the Indus Valley. The Indus Valley is the valley that runs through the centre of modern Pakistan from top to bottom. So hold up your right hand with your palm facing towards you. Got it? This, your hand and your fingers represent the river system of the Indus Valley. The fingers are your rivers. And in fact, your arm, your wrist and your thumb are the great river Indus, the westmost of all the rivers. And hopefully you have a, a hugely long distorted thumb that curls up high above your fingers and across over to the right. But if you don't, then just imagine that you do for the purposes of this exercise. So that's the Indus, the main river. Then your next finger, your index, is the Jhelum. Then your next finger is the chenab, then the ravi, that's your ring finger, and finally your little finger is the sutlej. Um, actually, your, your, river, your, your little finger splits into two towards the end, and one part of it, the eastmost part, is called the bees, and the other bit's called the sutlej. So from west to east, the six rivers of the Punjab are Indus, Jhelum, Chenab, Ravi, Bees, and Sutlej. And you can remember this with the handy mnemonic Indian jackals cross rivers before sleeping, which I suppose some of them do. Those are the modern names, the ancient names are different. I'm going to stick to the modern ones. So that's the basic geography of the area. The rivers define everything. These are great rivers and they're natural boundaries between kingdoms. Taxila is a city we've heard of. That's the great city of ancient learning in India. And that's positioned between the first and second fingers, between the Indus and Jhelum rivers. And roughly in the same sort of region is the modern day capital of Pakistan, Islamabad. Islamabad doesn't exist yet, and so it won't be a character on our stage. The Ganges and our main story are all far away to the right. That's the Indus Valley. 
It's tremendously fertile. And like I say, these rivers are big and tricky to pass, as we are about to find out. So this is the story of Cyrus the Great, first emperor of Persia, and his invasion and legacy in India. The world that Cyrus uh, knew growing up was divided into three great kingdoms. There was Lydia with its legendary wealth. This is the first government to mint gold and silver coins. There's Babylon with its already ancient history, which once was part of the Assyrian Empire and covered a huge territory. And there's Media, home of the horseback warriors, and that's where Cyrus is from. He grew up in Media. But he managed to gain control of Media, and in fact, in a period of 20 years, he managed to gain control not only of Media, but also of Lydia and Babylon. And he, he drew them together into the largest empire the world had ever seen, the Persian Empire. So that by 540 BC, he was self-proclaimed king of the four corners of the earth. Most impressively of all, he did it with a minimum amount of bloodshed. He killed very few people, and moreover, he protected the rights and interests of the people he conquered, or at least according to his own rhetoric he did. You can actually go to the British Museum, if you're in London, and see the, the so-called Cyrus Cylinder that he had written and laid in the foundations of Babylon after he captured it. And it boasts that he didn't kill a soul capturing the city, and, and that he released the, the people of Babylon from their oppression by the mad king who had been ruling them. The story of how Cyrus founded the Persian Empire and defeated each of those three kingdoms is a great one, but our focus is India, and Cyrus isn't there yet. But he's going to be shortly. According to some sources, after Cyrus had conquered all the four corners of the earth, he felt the need for a little bit more and he decided to add India to his portfolio. So he takes his army and he goes off towards India. But he gets caught up in the deserts of India and the expedition fails completely. We don't really know much more than that, other than this um, telling fact that Cyrus managed to make it back home, but from his entire army, he managed to save only seven men. The rest he left dead on the road to India. Still other sources say that actually Cyrus succeeded in conquering India. He held Afghanistan, Bactria, in his sway, and he managed to get into India and had some success. And there's good evidence for this. It seems that Indian kings were sending him money as tribute, so he must have had some sway in the region. Uh, oh, by the way, you might read that um, an Indian mercenary killed Cyrus with an arrow whilst he was suppressing a, a revolt. Um, but actually that's a mistake. Uh, that wasn't Cyrus the Great. That was um, a chap called Cyrus the Younger who, um, well, he's younger than Cyrus the Great. He's a descendant of Cyrus uh, and a later emperor. I'm not really quite sure why I read so many books which confuse the two. Anyway, so some people say Cyrus is in India. Some people say he isn't. And there's an easy resolution here because the name India means different things to different people in the ancient world. For some, it just meant the area beyond the Khyber Pass. For others, it meant uh, the area beyond the Indus River, and for still others, included large parts of Afghanistan. So, if we are allowed to say that Cyrus took all the land up to the Indus River, but didn't go beyond it, then that makes all the sources correct. Well, almost. So, let's assume that that's the case, and Cyrus is now in control of one of our Mahajanapadas, 
the Gandhara, with Taxila, that famous city of education, as its capital. And, you know, Cyrus might not have had full control, he might only have been exacting tributes from them, but he's at least got some very serious influence in the area. In any case, Cyrus dies and passes the four corners of the earth, bundled up nicely to his, uh, his, his inheritor, Darius. And this happens about, about the end of Bimbisara's reign. So that's episode three of the main podcasts. And Darius definitely does uh, come into possession of the Indus Valley. So he probably conquers the Indus Valley. He crosses the Indus, uh, he crosses that first river, that's your thumb and your wrist, and, and goes and, and in fact manages to take control of almost all of the area. He makes northeast India into a proper province of the Persian Empire what the Persians uh, call a satrapy. So they talk about India being a satrapy, one of 20 others. It's, it's a bit confusing because they talk about it as, as if it were India, and of course for us India means a much larger area, but when Persians are talking and they talk about India, they mean the Indus Valley and uh, Gandhara and the, the, the bits to the west. So India is a satrapy of the Persian Empire, one of 20 others. But it's not just another one amongst 20 other satrapies. It's a special satrapy. For one thing, it's got by far the most people. Growing up in Europe, we maybe tend to think of, well, I'm, I tend to think of uh, the ancient world as relatively lightly populated. Right? So you hear maybe about battles in ancient Greece where one side only took a thousand men to the battle, and they're supposed to be big and significant battles. And they are in, in the ancient Mediterranean world just because there are far fewer people than there are today. Um, but a lot of ancient India was absolutely packed with people. There's this tale told about Kalinga, which is a state on the other side of India, that it had so many people at this time that they had to stand shoulder to shoulder and they couldn't sit down. And that is a serious overcrowding problem. In any case, the Indian satrapy of Persia has by far the most people of any of the other satrapies. And as a result, it, it comes with a lot of revenue. Of course, it's only one of 20 satrapies, but it's supplied one third of the total tax revenue. And this comes uh, to, to the Persian capital in the form of gold dust. Uh, oh, Herodotus has got a, a strange story about how how the gold dust is found, he says that there are, there are giant ants. Uh, and when I say giant ants, I mean giant. I mean these suckers were the size of small dogs. And Herodotus says that he's heard that these, these, these little chaps would go and dig for gold and then bring it out, and then that would be taken by the, by the Persian um, satraps away to the Persian homelands. Well, actually, there does seem to be something to what Herodotus has to say. Well, maybe not about the dog-sized ants. Uh, but the Indian satrapy does seem to have been very economically productive for Persia. There was a lot of gold in them rivers, and, and the Persian emperors from Darius onwards were brilliant at extracting at it at a fantastic rate. So Darius takes control of this tremendously populous, tremendously wealthy province. He sends some boats down the Indus River to explore some more, and they come back with tales of an even more densely populated delta, and uh, tales of man-eating crocodiles. Darius dies, and he passes the empire to Xerxes, and with it, the Indian satrapy. 
Xerxes, you might well be familiar with, he was the Persian Empire who in, uh, emperor who, who invaded Greece and fought at Thermopylae, where those 300 Spartans stood their ground against that huge Persian army in a mountain pass. And that was depicted in the film 300 a few years ago. This is 480 BC, which is towards the end of Bimbisara's reign. Bimbisara ruled a long time. So this is about the time Agitus Chartru uh, is starting to cause trouble for his dear papa. By this time, the Indian satrapy is so much part of the Persian Empire that when Xerxes goes to Greece to fight at Thermopylae, quite a few of the soldiers he takes are Indians. Indians form some of the light infantry. They're, they're dressed in cotton, they've got spears and, and, and long arrows. Uh, they, they also provide some of the cavalry, uh, light cavalry, equipped much in the same way. And they also provide chariots and asses and dogs. So the Indians are fighting in Greece uh, under the Persian banner and they seem to have proven their mettle because they are hired by successive emperors in different wars. And well, that's kind of all we know about uh, Persian-ruled India. Northwest India is just a, a cash cow for the Persian Empire. We don't really get any stories from the place. And the Persian Empire sticks around for quite a few years, 135 more or so, uh, taking gold and soldiers uh, from northwest India to elsewhere in the Persian Empire. Um, and in fact, they carry on in name until Alexander the Great turns up, which is about the time of Mahapadma Nanda's death, about the end of uh, podcast 1.4. But in practice, uh, the Persian Empire has really loosened its grip on the Indian province by that time. It's actually probably got a very weak control on the Indian province. So but that by the time uh, the, the, that Darius III has to face Alexander, this is right at the end of the Achaemenid dynasty, the, the, the first dynasty of the Persian Empire, he has to plead with the Indians to fight to defend the empire. And it's really not clear that any Indians turned up to fight Alexander. What does all this matter for our main story that's carrying on far to the east. What sort of trace and influence did the Persian invasion and occupation have? In terms of language, perhaps really quite a lot. I mean, there are deep similarities anyway between Sanskrit and Old Persian. Right? In both, uh, you use the word nama for name, and there are other similarities too. Pitta means father in Old Persian, and Pitra means father in Sanskrit. Mata means mother in Persian, and Matra means mother in Sanskrit. And in Persian-controlled India, at least, they seem to have introduced the Persian script. So there's quite a lot of linguistic influence, perhaps, going on. But in terms of politics, things are much less clear and much more controversial. You'll often read, if you read the books, uh, this, this idea that the Persian conquest of India brought with it the idea of empire to India, and that Magda saw that idea and used that idea to build their own empire, to build their own at least huge kingdom. I guess the thought is something like this. Along comes uh, Persia with its satrap system, and Magda sees that and starts uh, using a sort of viceroy system of the sort that we've seen in earlier episodes, where you allow someone to rule uh, a province. So Ajita Shatru gets the province of Unger, for example. And the, the Persians come along with their great royal roads, their famous royal roads, very fast, allowing tremendously quick communication from the provinces to the centre. 
and these are copied by Magda. And Magda might have copied other things too, for example, the financial management system or the civil service structure. You can see how this picture of Magda catching the gist of how to have an empire from Persia is kind of tempting. Because the Mugden rise to power, rise to dominance, can seem very sudden, very um, surprising. There are these 16 kingdoms, and they're just squabbling amongst one another for quite a while. And then suddenly, boom, a huge kingdom appears, Mugda appears on the scene. It bursts on the scene in a very short period of time. And that's kind of surprising. And it happens just at the same time that, the, that Persia invades uh, northwest India. So you get people saying things like, well, look, it must have been that Magda copied Persia, and it's impossible that there was no influence. You know, whenever you hear that sort of emphatic language saying this can't possibly be the case, it's worth perking your ears up. Because in cases like this, it can cover up embarrassing facts. And it does cover up an embarrassing fact in this case. And that is that there is simply not a single jot of evidence in any ancient text that Magda was even in, is even uh, aware of Persia, much less influenced by it. None of the texts uh, mention any sort of influence, and in fact, none of the texts covering Magda mention the Persian Empire. What's more, some of the claims of influence are a little bit preposterous. For example, I read historians claim that the system of having higher and higher courts was something that Persia brought in. And then the Lichavis adopted that. The Lichavis, remember that republic to the north of Magda. And that just doesn't ring true. right? The Lichavis are people who seem very scornful of ideas, even from their immediate neighbours. They want to be self-determining. And it's very hard to imagine them basing their republican democratic society structure uh, on that of, a, of a, an empire uh, run impossibly far away. I think the thing to say here is that the Lichavis were perfectly capable of coming up with a court system themselves. And the fact that it was somewhat similar to the Persian system just tells you that it's a good system suitable for how humans work and how societies work. It doesn't imply that there's any causation. And you might say the same of Magda's viceroys or Magda's roads. Uh, but let's not go too far because there are a series of very clear influences of Persian culture on our region in uh, the Gangetic Plain. It's just that the evidence for those influences is much later. Right? The art and literature of, of the Mauryan Empire is clearly influenced by Persia. We just don't have any evidence for the, the Persian Empire influencing the Gangetic Plain at the time the Persian Empire uh, kind of controls northwest India. Let's leave talk of all of that complicated stuff to podcasts in the future. The Persian Empire's biggest impact in India might have been economic. The Persians drained the wealth of northwest India, drained it of gold, and they stored up all the riches in their home provinces so that when Alexander the Great conquers Persia and he arrives in the capital, he finds rooms just packed with gold dust. And in fact, they took so much gold from the, the satrapy of India to their home provinces that Alexander and his historians make no mention of having a huge gold haul from India. So it's gone from what might have been the richest satrapy in Persia to something that's just commonplace and everyday. And this might have weakened the power of Northwest India and left the people there more vulnerable. Okay, 
I've got a bit of time left, and I think I need to say something about the history of histories of India. If you're not into historiography, you can skip the rest of this section. There's going to be no more history in here, really. But there are some important things to get out there. There's a European fantasy of India, which goes by the name Orientalism. And the fantasy is that India is absolutely full of obscene luxury and decadence. And that Indian rulers are despots with absolute control, living amongst obscene luxury, having grapes plucked and placed in their mouths by um, libidinous women. The fantasy uh, includes the idea that Indian society is absolutely rigid. The individuality of the people is replaced with strict uniformity imposed by the king and by the religion. The fantasy is that there are forest sages who are mystics, rejecting all careful and rational thought and replacing it with insights into the nature of the universe called out from who knows where. The European Orientalist fantasy is ambivalent. Some people have found it deeply attractive, others were repulsed, especially those in the Enlightenment. The despotism ran against their democratic leanings. The mysticism ran against their worship of rationality. Take that pinnacle of the Enlightenment, Karl Marx. Karl Marx is more rational and more democratic than you might think. But about India, he's scathing. He says India is stuck in the Asiatic mode of production, where despots rule the city and take all the surplus uh, from the villages by force. And that leads to stagnation of economics and culture. Because for Marx, a society has to pass through a number of different economic models, uh, different, different modes of production to reach the final stage of communism. And India stuck in the in the very early stages, in the primitive Asiatic mode, and it's been stuck there for millennia. Thus says Marx. Well, historians from Europe managed to get a closer look at Indian history when they conquered India and took it as a colony. This happened... Uh, well, by the 18th century, a, a British company called the East India Company has ru rules most of India, and uh, luminaries from Europe, such as John Stuart Mill, work within the company to make sure it has the power. And from the mid-19th century on, the British government itself took over. More on colonialism in a much, much later episode. Anyway, this colonial uh, power enabled European historians to get a closer look at India. People like Max Muller, who's a historian living and working in Britain, start to investigate. And these colonial historians have an emphasis on religion. They've got an emphasis on Sanskrit texts uh, and discussions with Brahmin priests. And according to their story, the Orientalist fantasy is roughly right. India's ruled by large despotic kings who don't give two hoots about their subjects. The average Indian ruler, they say, was not a good administrator. He was a wastrel living in luxury and letting those beneath him fade away to nothing, with only a few exceptions. And according to this version of events, this leaves India in a very poor state. Technology remains primitive. People become fatalistic. For them, history just repeats itself over and over. So why bother trying to change anything? The economy is stagnant. They're stuck in a feudal world. And religion continues to rule people's lives and it's been unchanged for thousands of years. 
And all of this in the minds of the colonial historians contrasts very shabbily with the Greek miracle, with the Renaissance and with the professional and benevolent British administration. Even the more enlightened colonialists like John Stuart Mill, who thought that Indian people are not racially inferior, I know, very enlightened, uh, he thought that Indian culture imprisons Indian people, steals their individuality, never gives them space to make anything of themselves. In summary, these colonial historians thought that the everyday Indian is in trouble and needs British help, which seems rather convenient. These Orientalist historians, uh, starting with the Greeks and going all the way to the colonialist historians, make some pretty obvious mistakes. They always try to find Greek or at least outside influence on ancient India. So, for example, we've got this keenness to say that Persia and Persian ideas allowed the Mughan Empire to, to get going. And in fact, this seems to be what the whole out of India debate is all about. If you don't already know about that stuff, I'm not going to tell you. It's politically charged. It's very heated. I'm not touching it with a barge pole. There's also an overemphasis on formality and, and the formal rigid structure of society by these Orientalist historians. And that's partly because they're reading the Sanskrit law books and the religious texts. But these are written in a very rigid, formulaic way. My favourite example of this is uh, in the Arta Shastra, which we're going to come to in a later episode. According to the Arta Shastra, women are not to be allowed out of the house unless their husband is around. And if they have no husband or their husband is dead, then tough luck. They can leave maybe early in the morning before anyone else is awake, but otherwise they have to stay indoors. So if you read that and that was your only source, you might get the impression that things are very rigidly controlled for women and they just have no possible influence in the world outside of their husband's influence. But the very same work says that women are very usefully employed as spies, presumably not with their husbands in tow. And we know that women, both married and not, are out and out all the time and are playing a, a very significant role in politics and society. Another example. The Arta Shastra uh, describes the layout of the city. There are going to be, it's going to be a rectangle. And there's going to be a road right down the middle and a road right through the middle of the, of the horizontal axis too. And the Archishastra specifies that, you know, the palace is going to be in such and such a location and the blacksmiths are going to be are going to be in such and such another different location. It describes the whole layout of the city, but no city that we've ever discovered uh, in archaeology comes even close to matching this. Yet another example, caste is described as rigid and clear cut and the colonial orientalist historians rather took that at face value, but it seems to have been much less dominant and much less rigid than they thought. The third sort of error that the colonialist and orientalist historians made uh, was a more general one. In common with uh, histories of other parts of the world, they overlooked the bits of history which are not really connected with the rulers. So, for example, there are these features of ancient Indian life called guilds, and they're a central part of the social world for a large number of Indians in the ancient world. But you'll struggle to find any mention of them in the colonial histories. Or take drama. The ancient plays were known by these colonialist historians and they mined them for details of uh, the historical uh, episodes surrounding rulers. Much like you might mine Shakespeare to find out about Henry V. 
But the way that an average person sees a play, where they see it, what they see, all of that is largely ignored. Or take makeup and perfume, or take other features of day-to-day life. Uh, They're ignored by these historians. Um, We're going to cover them in the special episodes, but also in the main episodes too. We're going to be drawing out uh, links between uh, the rulers and the ruled. These podcasts that we're doing now are the history of the rulers of Pataliputra, but they're also the history of life in the states that they ruled. After uh, the colonialist historians uh, came the, the Indian historians of independence, and there's lots of great work here. Um, there, there's also an angle, though, that India was doing very well without Britain, um, and uh, that... Um, Indian forces were so powerful that they could only ever be overcome by either trickery or disunity. And you hear history books, you read history books where the great Indian rulers are motivated primarily by uh, patriotism for India as a whole. And that just sounds a bit suspicious. In the really extreme cases, we get all sorts of inventions ascribed to ancient India. And ancient Indians' inventions are overlooked uh, largely by the West. And that this is true, right? Um, the first running water, uh, India. Invented steel in India. Brain surgery first happens in India. Chess is invented in India. Uh, ancient Indians invent our number system. But occasionally you hear claims that ancient Indians invented the aircraft or solar panels or algebra. And this is just not plausible. There's a great quote from Luther about how humanity is a drunk horseman. He's he's sitting on top of the horse with his bottle of wine and he falls off the horse one side and he gets up and then he falls off the other. You can always swing to the opposite extreme. And maybe that's what some uh, historians have done in more recent years. But there are loads of quality historians of ancient India working in India from a variety of backgrounds. There are those who focus on the secular political scene, or those who focus on how religion has changed, uh, or those, including some from the Marxist tradition, who focus on day-to-day life and economic change. This podcast primarily draws on those historians working within India and from primary sources too. Just to make it clear, I loathe colonialism. I hate it. In fact, the words I would want to use to describe it are far too strong for this podcast. It was deeply, deeply wrong, the way that murder is wrong, and not only because it was always accompanied accompanied by widespread murder. If you disagree with that, then find out and imagine more about the life of people who suffered under colonialism. Colonialism is the kind of thing that you hope you would fight with, with all of your strength, tooth and nail, if you were alive. Of course, I can't know if I would have done that, except by telling whether I fight against uh, what's wrong now. And of course, colonialism's left a legacy, uh, which carries on. I also hate the Orientalist fantasy of India. Uh, In particular, uh, this way that some people go and see India almost as you go and see a zoo. People uh, people from India are seen as specimens to be examined rather than people to meet with, peers. This is um, tricky to get a finger on, but it's a very distinctive thing. 
maybe it's best explained by a story from Mark Tully. Mark Tully is an Indian journalist. Uh, Mark Tully tells the story of uh, Stephen Cox, who is an English artist, who is given money by the British government to go to India and to learn and to teach. And Tully went to the place where Cox had gone to learn and study. Uh, it's a college of, of sculpture and architecture. And the principal of that college was Ganapati uh, Stapati, uh, who was a descendant of a long line of architect sculptors who are expert in the ancient tradition. And the principal likes Cox. But he tells Tully that, you know, I did like him, but he never made the attempt to learn from us. He never questioned or asked my people. Yeah, he could have done. There are people who have learnt music, uh, Carnatic music, and they study for years. And a sculptor could learn that way too. The, the British Council should have sent me a boy of 15 or 16 and leave him with me for 16 years, for six years. I will make him a master sculptor. But Stephen Cox couldn't even work in our granite. He, he would have needed two or three years continuous work to master it. He couldn't do it, so actually we gave him the people to do the, the sculpting for him. Another architect in the same uh, college told Tully that Cox used to make sneering remarks to me whilst a party was talking, saying, he doesn't understand, or they've been doing the same thing for hundreds of years. It's almost lost his meaning for today. Tully uh, goes up to Cox and says, it seems to me you're doing exactly what the colonialists did. You're using the cheap labour and raw material, finishing it off yourself and selling it at a large profit. And Cox protests that actually the profits weren't very large. But that misses a deeper point, that Tully is criticising Cox for coming in and exalting his art above this ancient craft, as presuming that um, he knows best uh, and, and, and there's nothing much to learn here. Tully's captured the idea well, I think. Okay, rant over. I'm going to descend from Mount Pius and acknowledge that I too am going to make a bunch of mistakes, both in my details and in my overall approach. And many profound apologies for all of those mistakes. I'm really sorry. Every week we read something from the original source material, and this week it's from Herodotus, the father of history. Now there are many tribes of Indians, and they do not agree with one another in language. And some of them are pastoral, and others not so. And some dwell in the swamps of the river, and feed upon raw fish, which they catch by fish fishing from boats made of cane. And each boat is made of one joint of cane. These Indians of which I speak wear clothing made of rushes. They gather and cut the rushes from the river and then weave them together into a kind of mat and put it on like a corslet. Others of the Indians, dwelling to the east of these, are pastoral and eat raw flesh. These are called Padaeans and they practice the following customs. When any of their tribe falls ill, whether it be a woman or a man, if a man then the men who are his nearest associates put him to death saying that he is wasting away with the disease and his flesh is being spoilt for them. And meanwhile, he denies stoutly that he is saying he, he is not ill, but they don't agree with him, and after they've killed him, they feast upon his flesh. But if it be a woman who falls ill, uh, the women who are her greatest intimates do to her in the same manner as the men do in the other case. For, in fact, even if a man has come to old age, they slay him and feast upon him. 
but very few of them come to be reckoned as old, for they kill everyone who falls into sickness before he reaches old age. He goes on, but I can stop there. So that's Herodotus, father of history. It's a lot of fun, but about as trustworthy as a paper floor. Well, thank you for listening to the special episode of the History of India podcast. I'm sorry it got so politically charged and a bit ranty. That won't happen again. There were some things that needed to be said and they're out of the way. Many thanks for enduring it. Um, Thanks also to my friend Cam for the music. And please consider donating to my wife's charity. That's the Snehal Situ Memorial Fund. Details are on the website. Thanks for listening. Take care.